everybody. How's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest. I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, joining me once again from the Claremont Institute, it's Jeremy Carl. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. Absolutely. So I already saw some people, you know, they're, they're already getting wound up here as we were getting ready for uh, this episode. They're like, reparations? Why are you talking about reparations? This is so tired. This doesn't make any sense. This is such a distraction. But I think the really interesting thing and the reason I wanted to talk to you about this is that while a lot of conservatives rightly treat this as a ridiculous issue, what they don't understand is that this is already happening now, right? We know that the wider conversation about national reparations or some kind of federal level, some kind of wholesale 50 state uh, reparations thing, that's kind of stalled out in many ways. That's a it's a political football that that never really resolves into anything meaningful. But what is happening is that we have individual municipalities, individual states, governors talking about this now, and it's having an impact on uh, the country in ways that people, I think, don't understand. Could you talk a little bit about this more individualized uh, city-level attempt at reparations? Yeah, well, I think the most egregious example, and, and just because it's San Francisco, people also focus on it, is what's going on in San Francisco. But there are a number of other localities that I uh, mention uh, in my uh, piece. I think Evanston, Illinois, has actually paid out at this point something. And I think it's it's actually quite... Uh, I understand the temptation because you read over this stuff and it's so nuts that you're like, nobody could actually do it. Um, but in fact, I think this is a very real issue. It's happening. And, and what's more, I think unless we get uh, really serious, it's going to happen in a lot more places locally and, and potentially even nationally where we're going to see these sorts of reparations, these these types of payouts. Um, and I mean, this is this is not a fake issue at all to me. It's something that is is very much real and is very much going to happen. The only question is what what form it's going to take and how much the conservatives are going to be able to push back. So for people who don't know, what exactly is a place like San Francisco doing specifically? How are they planning to go about this? Well, they have this plan that they've put forth and it was put together by this reparations task force. And the task force itself is virtually all made up of, of African-Americans and uh, they've done a great deal of work internally to get, you know, somebody who's formerly incarcerated. And there's all this almost like farcical to any, you know, sane person um, bean counting they've done to make sure that they're representing every uh, possible subsect of the African-American community in San Francisco. Um, and they put together this task force to make these recommendations. And the $5 million, uh, to, you know, kind of lump sum payment to effectively every San Francisco African-American resident has gotten the headlines. But there's a number of other things that are almost as crazy, you know, from kind of mass debt cancellation to selling people their houses, you know, if they're renting for a dollar. Um, you kind of name it, you know, uh, counseling, you know, free counseling for emotional harm to African-Americans. I mean, it sort of goes on and they've come up with this whole laundry list of things that they are presenting to uh, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and subsequent to me writing my article, uh, the first meeting at the Board of Supervisors happened and uh, everybody basically agreed that this should go forward. Now, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of fakery that's going on with this. And I'm, do I think that we're going to actually see a $5 million payout? 
No, but I think it's very indicative of uh, where uh, a very elite uh, space in an elite city, uh, whether or not we like it, is kind of going on this issue. Yeah, and I'm glad that you pointed out kind of the the difference between the lump sum payment, which is what gets the headlines, what gets everybody riled up, you know, oh, how would you determine, how does it get divvied up, you know, where does it come from, uh, all that kind of stuff. But what I think is far more insidious and what is far more likely and really is already happening that a lot of people don't understand is kind of this institutional uh, creep of uh, different areas in which this different standard, this uh, this handing thing, these handouts, these different allowances that are made into specific communities, and people don't even realize this is going on. So, like you said, forgiveness of you know lowering, I believe, of taxes. I saw in there at certain areas, sure. you don't have to pay certain taxes. Paying off certain mortgages that, you know, all that stuff that's being floated, people laugh at that stuff. But we already know that private institutions are in many ways already taking these steps, saying we have specific loan programs only for people of particular races, particular backgrounds, uh, particular, you know, the, the, the Burger King Kids Club collection of, of, of you know, uh, you know, disabilities or other things that you were talking about before. And they're, they're already implementing this in, in high level uh, banks and, and, and other things like that. And so it won't necessarily be, I think, when we see reparations happening, it won't be this mass cash payout. It will most likely be along those lines where favorable opportunities are given to people based on their race, on their level of oppression that is supposed to be you know, given to them. And that's the stuff that's going to creep its way in, not only because it's easier for people to pass, it's less shocking than the direct cash payment, but actually because it's also more valuable to the Democratic Party and our wider ruling class because it creates a, a number of clients, right? Big patronage clients who are then, you know, one lump sum, you could go become independent with that. You might actually be able to do something valuable and build some kind of generational wealth that could be value your community to that. But if you can keep people on a drip feed of uh, entitlements, that makes them political clients for a much longer period of time. And so I think that's the thing that's far more likely to get instituted yeah. you know, under people's noses. Well, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think there's two different things that are going on. And the first is what you mentioned, this kind of notion that uh, it's much more useful to create a client base uh, over the long term. And in fact, sort of some of the more savvy people involved. I mean, there's two things going on here. One is... The fact that these sorts of crazy um, things could actually make it into a proposal, and I would expect that very few conservatives uh, other than me, I'm sure there are a few others, have actually read through this entire proposal. Maybe you can link to it in the show comments, but it, I mean, it's like a, an 80-page, 90-page document, you know, kind of documenting the, the full sorts of things that they're uh, proposing to do. Um, but I think it's interesting that there's a guy, Amos Brown, who is a longtime uh, African-American minister, uh, NAACP leader, and uh, and kind of activist in San Francisco. And he's kind of looking at it just how you say, he's, he's basically saying, look, this $5 million number is fake. And what we really need to be doing is all of these programs, which, oh, by the way, coincidentally, are going to run through me and my allies. Um, and that's where the real game is going to play. And he's kind of putting a a stake in the ground uh, to the board of supervisors. So I think that's one element of it. I think the other element of it is that the 5 million, the absurdity of that number serves as a psychological anchor. 
And you actually see this, unfortunately. There's a guy, John Dennis, who I actually know a little bit and uh, a nice guy and uh, the head of the San Francisco Republican Party, uh, which, as you can imagine, is a sort of beleaguered entity. <laughs> but he, he, kind of, he kind of is falling victim to this anchoring <coughs> excuse me, problem in that he's out there saying, oh, well, you know, if we just had some better empirical studies, you know, this five million is is crazy. But he doesn't shoot down the concept of it as fundamentally un-American, as fundamentally unrealistic, as fundamentally um, not something that is actually owed. Um, he, you know, he, he sort of gives the sense from his comments that, well, you know, if we ran some detailed studies and we arrived at, uh, you know, $180,000 per person number, that this would somehow be acceptable. He doesn't say that, but that's the implicit um, notion of what he's saying. And I think it's interesting that California, which is running a simultaneous uh, reparations thing, which I think is going to be harder for Gavin Newsom, especially with um, presidential aspirations to kind of push under the rug, they have thrown out a much lower top line number per person, something like 250,000. Now, of course, that's still absurd. It's not going to happen. <laughs> At least I don't think it's going to happen, but it's it's indicative of, uh, you know, um, they say uh, there's a kind of a famous um, a saying, I think it's from Winston Churchill being drunk and somebody will forgive me. I'm sure I'm getting the, the actual figures wrong. And he goes up to a woman and asks whether he'd sleep with her uh, him for a million uh, pounds. And she says, well, you know, that's certainly a lot of money. Uh, I'd have to think about it, uh, uh, you know, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure about that. You know, he says, well, how about a shilling? And she says, certainly not. What sort of woman do you think I am? And, and he says, well, I think we've already established that, madam. We are merely dickering about the price. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where we are with this. I mean, if we don't kind of reject the proposal root and branch, we're really just dickering about the price. And I think that is a huge mistake. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to bring in the concept of anchoring. I've been meaning I've been doing these these episodes on kind of progressive rhetoric and 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 anchoring is what is a big idea people need to grasp because that is so much of what the uh the reparations discussion is it's a it's a huge anchor to put something way out there that people attack and reject but then they end up uh, uh, you know accepting three-fourths of the premise that gets you to reparations in their attempt to deny the last quarter mile of the reparations argument and then right. realize how much they've lost in that and so uh, i think we we definitely need to address this because uh you know as you pointed out one of the guys here is a reverend you know and, and is so often the case with reverends in this movement we have to hear a lot about sin and particularly we have to hear about the generational sin of america and and how America has some kind of unique debt that it owes to uh, the African-American population or other populations that are considered disadvantaged or put upon or, or, or benighted by kind of the historic, the history of the United States. And it's amazing how much of the conservative movement seems to be willing to onboard the vast majority of that argument and is only really dickering over the, the, uh, things that we use to pay that debt off, right? right. How, how, how willing they are to get on board with almost all of the 
the pre the the parts of that argument that are being floated by the left except for the part where it's cash payments there, there should just be some other method or we can't we probably do owe this debt but we can't properly delineate who would receive it or you know who has right. the, the right amount of blood mixture or whatever in, in this right. and so therefore we just can't do it but they're never attacking the premise of this and i think that's something that you said is, is a huge problem right and, and i tried to do that in my piece and you know just to put my cards absolutely on the table uh, and I assume this is something I would share with you and, and a number of your, your listeners, the U.S. does not owe any person anything, period, based on the color of their skin or some sort of community they belong to. There may be very unique, particular situations where you had something like uh, the Japanese internment uh, folks from the 1940s, where you had actual individuals who'd suffered, you know, very, very specific harm and then were compensated in some clear way where you had a clearly defined um, group. But that just doesn't exist um, for, for any group in the United States. And if we start playing this racial bean counting about, uh, you know, who is a victim and who is a perpetrator, um, that is simply incompatible with anything resembling having a functioning multiracial democracy in this country. And it's not going to uh, turn out, uh, I don't think, for the left uh, in quite the salubrious way that they think it's going to. So do you think that there is a, a, a way for conservatives to talk about this? Uh, or it just has to come completely because it's it's this generational guilt, this idea that there's that that one group is going to constantly owe others that and that that is that is somehow unique in the United States or unique to the United States that I think is yeah. is so destructive. Is there a way in which conservatives or the right can talk about this profitably, or is there is it just completely abolishing this discussion from the beginning, just never engaging in it because it's impossible? Well, I think you know we need to be strategic. There's a lot of people in a lot of fora where you just don't want to engage because the game is rigged when you walk in. I think what I would say is we don't want to engage in a discussion with maybe our opposition on this because they're just in bad faith. Okay, they're just they're out for uh, they're out for a shakedown. But you know when we're out kind of communicating to the unwashed masses, I think we do need to talk about it overtly to explain that, of course, you know there's all sorts of injustice that's happened to all sorts of groups and individuals in the US history. We can talk about how none of that essentially is unique to the US story, whether it be slavery, whether it be discrimination, whether it be, um, you know, you name it. And and, and kind of as, as, as Thomas Sowell has written, and I, I quoted this in my piece, you know, the quest for cosmic justice kind of always leads to a greater injustice pretty much. Um, so we simply, you know, we, we do need to make that argument, even if we're not directly engaging with the bad faith folks on the other side. I do think it's important to explain um, our position. But then even more provocatively, I think you need to talk about, and again, I did this in my piece, well, if, if we're going to do this type of racial bean counting, you know, we can start looking at decades of interracial crime victimization, right? And what direction does that flow? And by that, I'm not suggesting that this is, in fact, uh, you know, that we should be doing, uh, you know, kind of tallying up those sorts of things and attempting to quantify them. It's just a way of saying, like, this type of group discussion is just not something, it's not, a, it's a Pandora's box that you can't open. As soon as I start saying, well, one group did this bad thing, 
somebody else can go say, well, this other group did this bad thing. And there is no end for that in a functioning democracy. I mean, it just, it will, it will end in disaster. Um, you know, we already have an incredibly fraught uh, democratic discussion going on in this country because, um, you know, I think it's, it's really tricky. I mean, I would never have chosen to uh, diversify our democracy and the way that we've done it. I think it's it's really hard to hold together these sorts of diverse polities uh, in a democratic regime. But we're here. Uh, we're not going to undo the fact that we're here. So let's look for things that can unify us ultimately and not kind of further divide us in some sort of Hobbesian war of all against all. Yeah, it's always interesting when someone starts to try to to have that discussion on Twitter. You always see a progressive start doing that because you just know Steve Saylor is going to show up in the in the mentions. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh no, you can you can you can, yeah. I, I would think someone uh, said Steve Saylor is like the boss music for for progressives <laughs> attempting to discuss crime statistics. Yeah. Um. So so yeah, it seems it seems like something that you if if you're interested in trying to have a functional. Uh, like you said, multi-ethnic community, then you probably don't want to go back and try to rehash every single time that one one side made the other side a victim, because you might discover that it's not quite the neat narrative that you know the left wants to to frame it as. It's not this direct flow of one right. group to another that they hope to, uh, yeah. to impress on people. And yet we do. I think we do have to talk about that amongst ourselves, mm. not because we're looking to go, you know, hand some list of grievances to some other race or some other community or anything like that. But because if you don't make the argument, then people don't even aren't even thinking about it. They're not even aware it's there. I think you have to concretize it and say, look, there are there's here's lots of things that go both ways in this discussion. And the correct way is not to have somebody adjudicating it, but just to say, look, we're going to always try to treat everybody, regardless of race, regardless of uh, sex, regardless of community in a fair and, and uh, a fair and just way with equal protection of, of the laws. And that's really the only way to, to go forward. Yeah. Cause you can see what happens when you don't, right? Like the, you have discussions. I mean, we just saw the Scott Adams situation, right? And Scott Adams just says really simply, like, if there's a group of people who are being taught to hate me, then maybe it's best that I don't end up in a situation where I'm interacting with people who are being trained by the media to hate me like that just seems like a really a really silly thing to put myself in a situation and of course like he just got destroyed right he got canceled right. from everything and you know that there's this you know no, nobody can carry his comments but then we just had robin d'angelo like yesterday and the video came out of her basically saying well this is exactly what people of color should do you know which i think is a fascinating tournament in itself people of color but i don't know if sure. i want to dump down that rabbit hole but anyway um uh, but this is exactly she said basically ex what Scott Adams said like you, you just should except even actually maybe maybe less so but but uh, you know she said you know th that uh, people of color should separate themselves from from white people and we see that actually now this is a new big part of uh, of kind of this woke counseling I wrote down the name of it because it was so weird what was the name of the um, oh uh, uh, affinity spaces so affinity spaces is kind of the new term for segregating people um right. and, and everybody needs their own affinity spaces and the really interesting thing about the creation of these affinity spaces is of course the the affinity spaces created by kind of these woke racial counselors are of of firming for people of color it's where they talk about how great they are and how they've been oppressed and how they how they can overcome it 
and the affinity spaces for whites and they do create affinity spaces for 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 uh white people in the organizations are there for, for struggle sessions they're there for they so they can all get together and talk about their privilege and how much they've hurt everybody and so it seems it seems that when we start having these discussions they're all of a sudden both sides of this come up with kind of a similar solution except one says i just don't want people to be taught to hate me and the other one says no we should actually segregate groups so we can talk about how much their victim one group can talk about how much they're victimized and the other group talk about how sinful they are for victimizing absolutely and i i think there are two things going on i mean first with the robin d'angelo uh versus scott adams thing as as steve saylor says my pronouns are who whom yes and that's i think what's <laughs> going right. on here right that's it's exactly like right the, the exact same space or as as my uh, Claremont colleague Michael Anton uh, talked about the celebration parallax, right? Mm -hmm. It's not happening and it's good that it is, right? The the observation is either something that we celebrate and is wonderful if one group uh, says it or if a disfavored group says it, we totally deny that it's even happening. So I think that's one thing. And I think the second thing is to understand, unfortunately, how long this has been going on in some form. Yeah. And it really flows from elite spaces. And I'll give you an example of this. I entered Yale as a freshman in 1991 as a kind of very naive to the ways of elite world uh, kid from uh, North Carolina. And when I showed up, one of my freshman roommates was from Puerto Rico. And we kind of had, uh, and we're still friends, but uh, we, we sort of had uh, freshman orientation. Um, but before the regular freshman orientation, he had had his own affinity freshman orientation for just Puerto Rican students. And of course, the message is like he shows up and before he's on campus, um, he's already got whether or not he even really desired this, this affinity space that he's been told he needs to be a part of. And these are, you know, his initial friends and everything else. And of course, you know, depending on the student, they may drift more or less from that. But that was the direction even 30 plus years ago of where elite discourse and elite institutions were saying that you should go. And nobody really questioned other than, you know, a few cranky right-wingers on campus, whether, and I say that obviously tongue in cheek, I mean, they were totally correct, um, whether this was something we should be doing, right? Like whether this was good, whether we should be making these sorts of racially essentialist uh, sorts of arguments about what affinity groups and things like that uh, were salient to people and where they wanted to participate. Um, uh, so, you know, now 30 years downstream, we're seeing this spread out into much uh, broader segments of society. Absolutely. And we're going to get deeper into that. I'm also going to ask Jeremy about kind of the news of Trump and everything that's going to be going on. Will he be charged? What will that mean? We'll get all into that in just a second. But first, let's hear from our sponsor for today's show. Hey, guys, I know a lot of you are taking care of yourselves. You're working out and you're watching what you eat. And that's great because you got to start taking care of things like your liver. Why? Well, because the latest data from the American Heart Association shows that adults with fatty liver are three and a half times more likely to have heart failure than those that avoid it. The American Liver Foundation says that over 100 million Americans already have fatty liver, which means a lot of people are at risk. There are so many things in our daily lives that can impact your liver. Cholesterol, alcohol, toxins. If you're leaning on things like Tylenol or statins, it can all have an impact. That's why so many people have a sluggish, fatty liver that makes them gain weight and lose energy. 
Your liver has a ton of key functions, which is why you want to take care of it. And Liver Health Formula can help. It's an all-natural supplement that contains 12 clinically proven botanicals, which help to recharge and protect your liver. It's also manufactured right here in the United States and approved by American doctors. Diet and exercise are key, but if you want to add something that will protect your liver and boost your energy, try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you receive a free bottle of blood sugar formula to reduce sugar cravings. You also get four free ebooks to support every aspect of your health. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash Oren and claim your five free bonus gifts. That's getliverhelp.com slash Oren. There's a link in the description down below that'll take you right to it. So before we move from this topic to kind of the news with Trump, I wanted to hit on one more aspect of your piece, which I thought was very interesting. You came out and just said directly that a big part of this is kind of disenfranchising uh, white citizens, white voters in the American political process. And that, you know, a lot of this stuff, a lot of what happens during these discussions is a rewriting of American history. We get all of a sudden a lot of, uh, frankly, black supremacy, where there's, you know, it, it turns out that uh, African-Americans invented and created basically everything that is good and, and right in America. And it's only the influence of white Americans that have just destroyed everything that the that, you know, the wholesome creation of, of uh, you know, the African-American community would have made. Obviously, there are amazing ca- contributions to America that come from this community. But Oh, it seems like there's a very particular uh, in- interest in removing basically all accomplishments that might have come from people of European descent and replacing them all from favored pieces of the progressive coalition, rewriting the American uh, narrative into one in which, you know, basically there's this racial separatism and it, it is always white Americans just robbing other ethnicities of their amazing inventions and heritage. And those people like somehow you know, soldiering through and creating the America we know and love today. Yeah, it's sort of the the mainstreaming of what I might call a nation of Islam historiography, where, you know, the evil Yaqub, the white devil sort of controls everything. And I mean, obviously, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's not it's not much. And I mean, it's funny because that was always seen of of all of the very controversial aspects of the nation of Islam back when it started as kind of the most almost toxic and crazy and and you know in unpalatable unrealistic and yet in some ways so many of those assumptions and this gets back to your your earlier comments have really become baked into a lot of the the mainstream discourse now and of course of course i'm i'm writing about this in in my book that looks at the rise of of anti-white discrimination and and racism in america in a variety of fields and yeah i'm going to have a whole chapter in there on on history and how we are rewriting our history in that way, not in a way that, um, you know, realistically acknowledges the contributions of, of individuals and groups that are sort of outside of, uh, you know, kind of white Europeans, but just a kind of wholesale um, uh, rewriting of American history that is um, no more factual, in fact, probably even a less factual account than sort of a, a turn of the 20th century account of uh, you know, U.S. history would have been that would have left out a lot of people who were not uh, European Americans uh, from the American story. Um, so it's it's really quite shocking. It does have a a, a very overt political component, um, and it attempts to use 
uh, moral shame as uh, as kind of and Zach Goldberg, uh, who's at the Manhattan Institute, has done some very interesting work on this and how uh, the media in particular kind of inculcates this sense of moral shame in white people to then uh, kind of prime the ground for various political demands to be made. Um, but that's really what's what's going on and, and it's it's really toxic. And again, I don't think we should engage really directly with the people making these arguments because they're just in bad faith. The people are in bad faith, the arguments are in bad faith. But I think that we are mistaken if we just kind of la 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 di da, you know, we'll ignore it, it'll go away. Um, we know we have to at least to to folks who are listening to us, certainly on our side, but also to the great American middle out there, we need to to kind of put forth the arguments for why these statements are wrong and why they're damaging. Yeah, because, uh, you know, like you said in your piece, what happens in California transfers to the rest of the country, you know, the 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 great red hot chili pepper song of Californication, right? But but uh, th that does affect everything. And it feels like there really is a very sustained and uh, push to really South Africanize the our system here, the yeah. racial quotas in every scenario, this generational guilt, this endless blame. Uh, and at every turn, like you said, there's always this incredibly bad faith demand for wealth transfer. Like this, yeah. is, this is just the key. It, 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 it turns out that the solution for every bit of this is always, you know, wealth transfer and always an exclusion of opportunity uh, for the oppressor class it, you know, in in uh, in service to the victim class so that that is that is created here, and I think right. that's just incredibly dangerous. It's gonna it's gonna take us down. It, it can only create more division. It can only create more hostility. It it seems like a good short term solution for power now, but it's just incredibly devastating. Again, as we're seeing in places like South Africa, in, in the long run, for just everyone involved, it just deteriorates the uh, the ability of society to function. And it really brings you to a really critical situation, but it doesn't seem that that the conservative movement has a narrative on this. It doesn't. It isn't like you said. You, you the people involved on in progressives for the most part is just bad faith. But it seems yeah. like conservatives themselves don't are so terrified of this issue. They don't have a narrative on this. They don't have a way which to process race relations other than to say right. like, well, the Dems are the real racists. That's, that's right. really the only right. the only club in their bag here is actually it turns yeah. out the Dems are the real KKK. So it, right. we're just going to take the Democratic narrative on race and say, yeah, we agree with this one, but they're the bad guys. Yeah, and we have to get bolder or we're going to gonna lose. I mean, I don't enjoy personally talking about a lot of this stuff, I and mean, not just because yeah. it's contentious and I'm not like – and inherently, I'm not like one of these guys. I mean, there are people who just delight in, uh, you know, like a guy like James O'Keefe just loves going out there and being confrontational. Like, God bless him. You know, we need we need people like that. That's not me. I mean, I don't I wish there were I didn't have to be out here talking about this stuff. Um, but if we don't, the consequences are so much worse that we're, we're morally and and politically obliged to kind of correct these false narratives that are being put out, to put out the truth, um, to accept that you're going to be called like a racist or a fascist or a KKK member or whatever else. Frankly, if you're not getting that type of epithet from the left, it, nothing you're doing is probably mattering at all, quite frankly. Um, you know, if they're not going after you and they've gone after me in other contexts in fairly prominent ways, uh, you know, then you're just, you're not trying hard enough. You're not pushing hard enough. Um, so uh, we do need to move beyond the Dems are the real racist uh, kind of rhetoric that just reifies 
there, um, a dem frame of all these um, questions in the first place. And, and I, I mean, I think the good news is South Africa, I mean, obviously, if you followed uh, South Africa closely from kind of the last days of apartheid to where we are today, I mean, it's a very sort of, you went from great promise to something that is, uh, you know, pretty bleak and looking like it's going to get bleaker. Um, I don't think we are for a variety of reasons in that apocalyptic scenario, nor are we likely to be. I think it's, they're just a variety of historical and, and cultural and, and different groups involved. So I don't think we'll wind up there, but we can still wind up in a very, very bad place. And if you look at, for people who are just, you know, obviously not on our end, but for the people who are, you know, horrified by the existence of Donald Trump, they need to understand. And again, this has been pretty clearly documented. We had this great awakening as it were, you know, kind of emerged from about 2012 to 2014, where the left, which has always been kind of radical on these issues, but just got much, much more radical really quickly. Um, and Trump's rise was a response to that. I mean, Trump was uh, not the instigator. He was the the response. Um, and I, I kind of say jokingly, but I think it's, it's absolutely true. Um, we are headed on a path where in 15 or 20 years, the libs are going to have strange new respect for Donald Trump. And mm -hmm. they are going to look back to the halcyon days of Donald Trump, uh, you know, who was a patriot, who, uh, you know, put together the platinum plan, who, you know, cared about, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, he, you know, we are headed toward a world where if there keeps being this type of racial pushing, there's going to be pushback in ways that are alarming and really damaging because people are going, a certain group of people, even if it's not the establishment, are going to defend themselves. And some of them will do that in ways that are appropriate and socially responsible and others won't in the ways that we're seeing right now from the left. And when we have two playing at that game, uh, things are going to get very ugly very quickly. And uh, you know, I worry that that's, that's a road that we're headed down if we don't course correct pretty quickly. Well, speaking of reactions to Donald Trump, uh, let's let's go ahead and get more to segue. Yes, I appreciate those. That was a pro move on your part. Well done. Um, let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about the news of the day here. Now, uh, obviously, we heard from Trump's own Truth Social account, uh, and Donald Trump, just go on Twitter, please, please, just do us all a favor, just go back on Twitter, Elon, just just pay the man, whatever whatever Truth Social is is got him locked into contractually. Just buy out the clause and put him back. It'll be worth your you'll 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 make it back tenfold immediately. I promise. Um, but uh, but from what we saw, he is saying that he's going to be uh, arrested on Tuesday over charges of uh, misuse of funds to pay off stormy Daniels and, and hush money and whatnot. Um, now I'm not sure because it's Donald Trump, whether there's some level of hyperbole here, it sounds like there are actually some, there is actually some, some truth to this. I don't know if they're, they're going to show up and try to perp walk Donald Trump out of Mar-a-Lago, but it, it does seem like the, you know, the, the DA in Manhattan might be, might be willing to go ahead and pursue this. Do you think they're crazy enough to do this? What do you think about Trump's response asking for protests? Is this just campaign fodder or, or are we really looking at a constitutional crisis here? Well, I don't know that we're yet at a constitutional crisis because I don't think there's going to be anything that um, they're likely to do that will really keep Trump from being able to run. Although it's always clearly been the game of the, the folks within the Democratic coalition 
who wanted to pursue the criminal uh, strategy with Trump to kind of take him off the playing field. But I think the savvier folks in the Democratic Party realize, and we're already seeing this, that this helps Trump. I mean, it helps Trump a lot with, you you know, if you're on Twitter and not just truth, which you are, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, you see lots of people, uh, you know, on our side, some of whom saying, yeah, well, you know, I've got some reservations about Trump, but this is outrageous, right? And which it is, of course, it's totally outrageous. It's totally political. And so everybody is kind of rallying around Trump to defend it. And I think Trump is also a very savvy guy, obviously, about media and about politics and understands this and understands that um, kind of making this a, um, a media story helps him. Um, obviously, while there's not a direct constitutional crisis, it is a reflection of the very dark place we are in as a country that uh, Trump could become the first ex-president to be criminally charged in this way. It's it's an indication that our opponents kind of don't respect the rule book at all, um, that they're willing to basically uh, take down Trump by any means necessary. And it's, it's you know, it's kind of another, uh, you know, kind of another mark for the accelerationist black pill um, kind of uh, view of where we're going uh, in America <laughs> right now. Yeah, you you really do wonder if the left understands the gravity of this level of acceleration, right? Like it, they didn't need to do this. They they right. really don't. And, right. and so by by applying this pressure, like you said, it, it benefits Trump politically, but it puts their power in a really tenuous place. Like you're right. Like it's probably not going to come to this, but I mean, if you're in a scenario, you know, so, someone already asked Ron DeSantis about this and he kind of, well, I'm not going to get involved in this kind of clown show. You know, I don't know about paying off porn stars. Well, you know, got a little dig in there and t you know, fair, fair for Ron. It's not like, uh, it, it's not like Donald Trump has been particularly kind yeah. to Ron DeSantis lately. So I, 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 I think both sides get a little whiny about this. I, I, I kind of get yeah. tired of the DeSantis stands being like, oh, I can't believe that, uh, you know, he's not coming out and forcefully, you know, uh, defending Trump at every opportunity. It's like, well, yeah, if you if I was Ron DeSantis and Trump talked about me like that, I would not. I mean, look at, you know, look at Ted Cruz and the way he responded to right. Trump after you know Trump talked about his wife. Like, I'm sorry, that's that's just a demasculating scenario. Sorry, guys. I know people out there love Ted Cruz. But uh, once you once you've done that, it's hard to respect you as uh, you know. It, but so I, at, at some level, I totally get Ron DeSantis's uh, point. But on, on, on the other side, you know, you you do leadership is saying this is wrong. Like leadership is saying uh, you, no matter who. Donald Trump is and what he said to me personally, this is not how we operate and allowing this yeah. in our, in our country is just absolutely horrific. And there is a, there is a, a scenario. I'm not saying this is the scenario, but there is a scenario where extradition says, you know, they got to deliver Trump to New York and uh, Ron DeSantis says no. Right. Or, yeah. or is asked to say no. I think that would be no. a DeSantis politically. I mean, you the whole think thing so? DeSantis in a difficult situation you know, I think uh, he kind of tried to thread the needle with his response, depending on whether you're pro-DeSantis or pro-Trump. He either did that pretty well or he didn't do it pretty well. Um, but I think that's clearly what he was trying to do. I think in many ways, a dream scenario for DeSantis would be if you were put in a position where he has to extra extradite Trump or approve of it. And he just says, no, I'm not going to do it because then he also he looks like he's in charge 
and uh, he looks like he's, uh, you know, kind of standing by Trump, but it's a little difficult because, uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily want to rally around this particular flag mm. for his own reasons, and he doesn't want to be uh, emasculated uh, Ted Cruz style. And I have to say, I mean, this is one of these weeks where um, I am really kind of tired of the various partisan sniping on Twitter, and I, I have not, you know, endorsed a candidate uh, for 2024. I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, fond for different reasons of both uh, Trump and DeSantis, and then there's a pretty sharp fall off after that in terms of my uh, enthusiasm for folks. Um, but not uh, buying the Nikki Haley T-shirt. Yeah, you know, no, no, I'm not buying the Nikki Haley T-shirt. I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not a Pence stan. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't have a dog in the fight uh, per se. Um, but the kind of sniping back and forth and the, the kind of essentializing, oh, you know, this, even Elon did it, you know, this, this is absolutely, you know, Trump will cakewalk into an election if he's perp walked today. We're 10 months away from the first primary votes. Chill, just chill. Mm, right. I mean, like we are, I mean, it's like just because something's happening does not require you to have a hot take about it. Um, we are so far away from votes where this matters, there's going to be so much water under the bridge between this time. I mean, I do think that the one thing that DeSantis has done that's judicious is kind of not immediately jumping in, you know, full, you know, it's just, there's no percentage in that for him. Um, you know, and at the same time, you obviously, uh, you know, he doesn't want to look like the villain in terms of doing anything to uh, validate the government's actions in this regard. But um, there's just so many things that are going to happen. Um, this is a good thing for Trump politically that it's happening. It's a bad thing for our country that uh, the Democrats have kind of sunk to this low. But how it's going to play out in a primary, we just don't know. <laughs> there's so many other things that are going to happen between now and then. And we just need to sit back and not rush to have a hot take on how this is going to determine everything because it's not. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting. A lot of people, you know, saying, oh, well, if he gets arrested, then that's, you know, he he's a lock. You know, it's it's over. It's yeah. like, I don't know, guys, like, have you been paying attention to how Democrats have been able to destroy plenty of people with this process? Like, sure. especially when there are other viable, like, uh, you know, candidates out there. I'm not sure that this is this is necessarily the gift. Um, you know, long term people think this is, though you're right that it becomes a very interesting scenario over who, if DeSantis says no to some kind of extradition, then who, then who really benefits from that? And while they're both like kind of doing this frenemy showdown in the middle of the whole thing of like, who's going to, who of these two people who are battling against each other and are probably going to be hating each other, you know, even more at that point, who's going to benefit more from the defense of Donald Trump is, is, is kind of a very interesting dynamic, yeah. but it it is a really bad sign for the Republic that that is the most pertinent pol political uh, uh, a political question is like who would benefit more from a highly political prosecution of opponents by our insanely corrupt federal government right. who is more than willing to wield the DOJ as a weapon to just destroy their political enemies? No, absolutely, absolutely, it, and it's just it's we we can't know. Um, so we're just gonna have to see how it plays out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Trump is a guy who's good at being the center of attention and he's grabbed the, the media attention. And, and I think that's helped him in the polls, uh, right now, but there's just still, there's a long way to go. There's a long way to see 
how this plays out, what the Democrats can throw at them, and and how how much it's going to matter uh, for those who are uh, going to vote in this primary, who are not necessarily fanatical partisans of one candidate or the other. And while that is not a large group on Twitter where everybody, you know, seems to have a life or death take, I think it's still a very large number of Republican voters. Yeah, I'm just in this weird scenario where, like, I, I'm a Ron DeSantis fan. I live in in the kingdom of Ron DeSantis, and I am a, a beneficiary of his of his rule. Um, but I just don't think he should run. But obviously, you know, because I just I don't think I think he can do more good regionally than he can nationally at this moment but um but you know that that makes so it puts me in a weird position of like i liked ryan DeSantis, i think he's good i just you know i just think that trump firing that trump missile at the media is is usually the best thing you can do with an election cycle at this point is is my yeah. personal opinion so i so it's kind of like i like both for different reasons i you yeah. know and and so I, i'm not really hostile to either one and so i'm just like like you i'm yeah. like come on guys settle down like let's pretend like we care about a country for 10 minutes like <laughs> sure well and it's just it's so i mean look there's paid partisans out there on yeah. each thing and bless their hearts as they say <laughs> back in the, the south you know um Indeed. but for everybody else this sort of sniping like you know trump is the antichrist or desantis is the antichrist or whatever i mean it's just it's so low IQ. Just stop. I mean, these are candidates with both some very strong positives, um, some some negatives that are also out there, and and you know you can wait however you want to. Um, the notion that kind of either one of them is kind of uh, a simp or a total failure or an establishment creature. It's just, I mean, people really do believe this, but it's it's not to me. It's not intellectually serious. It's not intellectually serious look at either one of their records. And so I hope that um, at least among people who are not paid partisans of one or the other, that will tone the temperature down on some of these discussions. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and run to some questions here real quick before we go. But uh, but before we do get to the questions of the people, is there anything you want to let people know about? You got a piece coming out or something that people should check out before we start taking questions? Well, I've got, I'm going to be writing some more pieces in this vein. Uh, I've, I've got one I'm working on right now about uh, that I'm kind of tentatively calling the coming collapse of the Democratic Party coalition. Um, and I'm actually arguing that partially because of some of this insane racial stuff that they're doing, that the Democratic coalition is much less um, coherent and stable than it looks like right now, that, that in fact, this is going to break upon the shores of reality and that's going to be a big trend. I've got my book that I mentioned that's that's not going to be out for for probably a year plus, but uh, certainly want to push it. And then obviously uh, my Twitter handle, Jeremy Carl four uh, is uh, that's number four, uh, J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-R-L is a great place to follow me. I post all my my work there or at my website, jeremycarl.com. I've got links to a lot of my stuff. So uh, that would be uh, places to go to look for for more from me. Excellent. All right. Let's go ahead and take a look at our questions. Uh, Ronald McNuggets, uh, thanks for your super chat, but you did it right before we got started. So I can't throw up on the screen, but I'll go ahead and read it out. We appreciate it. Uh, the regime is trying to provoke a non-peaceful reaction to justify further clampdowns and revoking rights of regime dissidents. Is it, uh, is it possible to escape this Hegelian dialectic, dialectic economic meltdown is only uh, the only idea I've got. And yeah, this is, so this is a real interesting problem. I, I talked to Trish Woods uh, about this uh, on her show over the weekend, but we're in this really uh, difficult scenario for the right where, you know, we're, we're told the story about protests, right? Protests are what you do to get your voice heard. You got the right to assemble. You got freedom of speech. 
you get everybody together and you let the government know that you don't like what they're doing. And so obviously with this announcement of what's going on with Trump, you know, he urged there to be, uh, you know, uh, kind of protests on his behalf, that kind of thing. There's there are two camps, people saying, OK, we got to take some kind of action. If you sit around this whole time and you don't do this kind of popular pol- political organization, then the left is just going to crush you because you sat around and tried to be too smart about this and did nothing. And other people saying, look, the protests won't change anything. And these are just going to be Fed traps. We already know that the security state is interested in infiltrating these things and leveraging for leveraging them in order to justify more attacks on you know the right and Trump supporters and others in general. What do we do in this scenario? Is is there even a good answer to this? You know, well, it's tricky, and I actually had a Twitter thread that got a little bit of attention about this very subject, where I said, "Look, I'm you guys are all adults. You're smart people. Uh, you're listening to the show. I'm sure you can make your own decisions. The only thing I would caution people is to just understand, and I put this in the Twitter thread, the the power relations that you're not. If if you're thinking of doing this in a really blue city. You need to view yourself as like a Soviet regime dissident or a Chinese dissident almost. You don't have full rights. You don't, I, mean, I don't care what the, the nominal stuff is. If you watch what happened with January 6th, even for people who are not participating in anything violent. Um, so you just need to go in if you decide, I mean, if you decide to go in either nonviolently or full Braveheart, you know, no matter what it is, um, uh, you need to understand kind of how you're going to be treated if you're in a blue jurisdiction. And I kind of did this. And then it was actually interesting. I put this out, it got a little bit of attention. And I heard from a friend of mine who had been one of the student leaders of the Velvet Revolution in uh, Czechoslovakia, where they'd overthrown the communists. And I hadn't heard from him in months. He's like, dude, you're exactly right. This is what, uh, you know, we were always cognizant of this when we were student leaders against the communists. And what he really advised was doing things that confuse them. And this is almost like an Olinsky type take he had where he's kind of like, I mean, he even said, and this is obviously not quite relevant to the thing, but he's like public Dungeons and Dragons tournaments. I mean, do do tactics that are fun for mm-hmm. your guys that flummox and make fun of their guys that you don't, when the regime controls every institution, you know, he said in the way that the left does today, a frontal assault is usually, and I mean that metaphorically, not physically, uh, just to be clear, it's it's usually a risky losing strategy. I mean, sometimes uh, if you do it the way the civil rights leaders did it, where you know you have kind of grandmothers being clubbed down on TV, then that can sometimes play in your favor if you can get the other guys to be egregious enough. But a lot of times it doesn't work. And so what he sort of said is, you know, you almost have to have a judo strategy where you're kind of using the enemy's strength and power against them. And I do think that quietism per se is a mistake. I mean, I'm not a, a Curtis Yarvin guy in, in that particular respect, but I do think that we need to, any any tactic we do, we need to think about what's smart, what's strategic, what is likely to leave us with more power than we have it. And it shouldn't be about feeling good. It's about what gives us more power, more authority, more ability to fight back and take the next step. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, we don't, we just don't have the media top cover for hoping that the the egregious crackdowns of the regime play out well across, you know, sympathetic uh, groups. And so having, you know, one of the things that made the meme magic of kind of 2016, so, or 2015, 16, so powerful was that it was, it was kind of pushing the envelope and, 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 and working on the edges in ways that the regime it was making fun of them. You know, they, they, right. they were just so trapped by it constantly and they didn't know how to 
address it because none of it was really aggressive. None of it was really illegal, except, I mean, obviously check with Douglas Mackey on that. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that none of this has costs, but I, I, I think it's a really good point to say, rather than putting together things that look threatening, that, that give the appearance of the dog biting back after being kicked a million times, think of things that, that, uh, that are funny, that are subversive, that, uh, that delegitimize. Delegitimize. I can do this. Uh, the regime in a in a way that is uh, completely inert, that, that that has is very optical, that doesn't have any any way for them to kind of paint this as a as a dangerous activity. So rather than dressing up and grabbing a bunch of shields and face masks and and uh, and donning your FBI windbreaker, maybe you go ahead and and put together a group that is a, a little more able to you know play with and mock and 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 subvert the regime and and kind of their institutions and their credentials and those kind of things yeah. ra- rather than bring them that pressure you know head on and give them the enemy that they're looking for yeah you you want to make them look as uncool and as totalitarian as they actually are mm-hmm. and you want all of the people who want to be with with the people with with the momentum with with the integrity to kind of flock to your side and yeah. that's and I think that's how you do that that's exactly right. Glow in the dark here for $10. I think we're starting to see, uh, to reach uh, Zimbabwe or South African levels of black Marxist grievance. Don't tell anyone that we bought the slaves a country for themselves and they still chose to stay. Well, I think that you're, I think Jeremy kind of already spoke to the fact that he, does, he doesn't think we're quite there when it comes to reaching South African levels. But there is obviously, uh, as we addressed, a, a, a growing push for this like they're, they're, this is a core of uh of a lot of this and i think it, it's just incredibly destructive you know, i'm not sure how much of it is marxist but uh but but uh certainly in in south africa it is um but but there is obviously a, a real push for this and it is very ugly and uh it, it does have very serious consequences like jeremy yeah. had pointed out yeah and, and a lot of this is just uh, you know, we need to tell particularly some of these, and I don't want to, I think it's too reductionistic. I mean, we've talked a lot because this is a reparations article about African-Americans and whites, but it's not just a biracial dynamic. I mean, there's lots mm-hmm. of other groups that are involved and we're seeing this in, you know, playing out in less dramatic ways elsewhere. But particularly with this, there is a radical, entitled, privileged African-American class that is never told no, you know, like they're never told no. So I'm, I am, you know, my one voice, uh, you know, right there in front of the camera saying, no, you know, you don't get to do this. This isn't in fact the way American history played out and you're not entitled to stuff from me. Sorry. And I think having us speak boldly and apologetically, unapologetically um, with that voice really helps, even if I don't think you know, I think our, our bad scenario looks a little more like Brazil than South yeah. Africa, but, uh, and in fact, we've written about the Brazilianization of America, but I think it could be worse than Brazil. And Brazil is not such a great outcome. If you look at what's going there right now, and it's certainly not uh, the outcome that we fought at Bunker Hill uh, to get. And so we, we need to do better and, and demand more. We've got Creeper Weirdo here for $5. Whether it's silly entertainment stuff or reparations, it's all... Uh, all has one thing in common. It's cultural revenge. I want, uh, I want it so you don't, uh, can't have it. And yeah, I mean, obviously there is a, a large amount of punishment necessary, right? This is, this is basically the glue that holds the progressive coalition together is, is grievance and punishment. 
we get to we get to hurt people we get to tell people they're wrong we get to lecture down to them and if they if they weren't able to do that then i don't know that the coalition would hold together at all which sounds like you're putting a piece together on possibly but i do right. think that's a, a really central part of that coalition and i it's a it's a cult of power and if there wasn't power to be generated by by gluing these uh, groups together due to their ability to claim grievance then i don't think they would hold together at all yeah, and jealousy and grievance. I mean, there's lots of, you know, you can talk about the seven deadly sins, but to me, just jealousy in general is just, maybe I'm lucky that I just don't really particularly suffer from this myself, but it's it's sort of the deadliest and worst of sins to me to to not kind of be appreciative, almost whatever position you're in in life of the things you have and, and the tremendous privilege of just being alive and to kind of, you know, lash out at some other person or group for having something. And it's actually something I've been thinking about with respect to my own book, which is, I mean, I could go on with hundreds of pages of complaints here, but how do I not just make it about complaint, uh, much as that complaint is is totally justified? How do we, you know, have a more positive common vision of, hey, you know, we're all, <laughs> we're all stuck in this country together, barring something really dramatic uh, happening. Uh, so, you know, how can we um, you know, speak speak truth to power, which is really what we're doing. You know, the left is speaking power to truth. Um, how can we, uh, to use their language, speak truth to power, but yet same time, uh, you know, do it in a way that that ultimately does extend an olive branch to you know those on the other side of things and invite uh, the reconciliation that we're going to need to function as a country going forward. Yeah, it's really interesting because I have uh, a few uh, kind of internet friends I'm, I'm in regular contact with in South Africa. And uh, and Ertz Van Zyl on a, a, a conscious caracal on Twitter, you know, he, he yeah. said to uh, people multiple times and I think it's really important. He said, look, I know a lot of people are just they get caught up in this grievance and they and, and rightly so that, you know, their communities are attacked and this kind of thing. But, you know, South Africa is whether no matter what you think about it, it's a it's a multi-ethnic society and it's going to be governed that way. And yeah. so you've got to find allies and you've got to build bridges and you have to find a narrative that uh, that works uh, for everyone. Yeah. You, there, yeah. there is no there's no other option. And I think a lot of people need to hear that in America, too, sure. is is you, you you might have a valid point about what's being done and the way your community is being targeted. But yeah. at the end of the day, this that there is a reality of the of the you know political situation and, and the body the political body in the United States and it's not going away. And so no. you have to figure out a way to, like you said, create a, a narrative in a future that people can get behind, want to be on board with. They, they right. want more than the, the destruction that's being preached to them by the other side. That's right. And I, and I think, I mean, ultimately we are in a Hobbesian war of all against all against say the 10% of the activist left. I mean, we have to beat them and crush them yeah. and there's no way to sugarcoat it. And there's no way to kind of, I mean, you'll get some defectors from their side. We'll figure, eventually figure out what's up, but there's no way that we are going to have a modus vivendi to them. We just have to beat them. However, there's the 80% of folks who are not in the 10% of activists on our side or the 10% on their side. Um, who are in the middle, who are just kind of trying to live their lives. And they're listening to the mainstream narrative, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. And they're saying and doing some stupid things. And maybe they even believe some of these stupid things. But if they're given a different vision and somebody reaches out to them, they could say less stupid things and believe smarter things. And, and you have to do that. You have to, you have to, those guys are not the enemy, or at least they're not the enemy unless you want to go back to the year zero and, 
and Pol Pot and kill uh, 25% of the people in your country, including anyone with glasses, uh, which is certainly not a political program that I am signing up for. Um, I appreciate you not declaring my genocide here on, on yeah, camera. That's so, there's, there's, there's no genocide of any type uh, being uh, uh, propounded during the uh, the filming of this show. The glasses, um, uh, gen- great glasses genocide. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, um, but but you know you have to realize that even some of these people, a lot of them, in fact, who are in various ways complicit uh, in uh, in being involved in a lot of bad and stupid stuff, we can bring them around. I can save them, right? You know, I can save her, right? But that really is true in this case. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important that we don't start a political movement for both moral and practical reasons that sort of declares the, you know, large, large number of people in America who still don't quite get it as the enemy. We've got a smaller group that's the enemy. We will take care of them in due time, I hope. Uh, we're, you know, I don't mean that in some sort of, uh, you know, non-legal way, but just, you know, we're going to have to fight a political struggle against them. But there's also a lot of people who are not on our side right now who we need to have a positive vision uh, where we can bring them over. Yeah, you got to remember if you're adherent to uh, to elite theory, which many people who who watch this are, then you know that that's what guides things, and the vast majority of people are just going to reinforce the ruling ideology, and so you don't need to, you know, like you said, uh, you know, somehow, you know, manhandle every single person who disagrees with you. You just need to go ahead and convince a the the right people and move the right the levers and most people will go ahead and say this looks better than what we were doing and this works better than what we were doing and actually we'll just do this instead you, you yeah. really don't have to convince every single most people are actually just conservative in the sense that they want the rules observed they went equilibrium in the system they want to be able to have a life where they can have predictable outcomes that are positive for them and the people around them and if you offer that to them they'll follow you. Yeah. The, the, the rest will follow from there. Absolutely. Couldn't agree right. more. Uh, Creeper weirdo again here for $2. So Trump will be looked at like Reagan, you know, it's funny enough. I was, I was talking about this a little bit, but uh, I think there's a, a, a high likelihood uh, of actually zombie Trump ism uh, in the same way that we have zombie Reaganism. I think there really is a high likelihood if, uh, if, if things don't turn around of kind of the MAGA movement, uh, just being captured and becoming a zombie Trumpism once, you know, Trumpism without Trump in that case. Yeah. Well, and let me give, let me do my old guy thing here for a second as a guy, somebody who just turned 50 this year, because I do think among a lot of young, well-meaning sort of more radical guys on our side, there's a temptation to hit Reagan. I grew up under Reagan. Did Reagan have shortcomings? Absolutely. Did he have flaws? Absolutely. Did he not see everything that was coming down the pike? Absolutely. He was beset with a certain set of political problems that were not necessarily the same political problems that we have today. And he handled those problems for the most part really well and moved a lot of people in a very effective way. And that's why he was so popular. And that's why he was able to win elections the way he did. And again, I mean, there are plenty of legitimate things that one can criticize Reagan about, but, you know, indicative again, for, for a lot of folks who, for, for whom pitchfork, pitchfork Pat uh, Buchanan is kind of the lodestar. There's a reason Buchanan was Reagan's press secretary. Okay. And I'm sure if you were to ask Pat Buchanan about Reagan today, he would be largely complimentary while certainly, you know, not kind of eliding over some of the ways in which uh, Reagan fell short. But but uh, in the same way that I think we're doing with this racial debate where we make a big 
mistake to judge people from the past with the standards we have today. It's a big mistake to judge Ronald Reagan, you know, 40 plus years ago, facing a totally different set of what I can assure you, having lived then, were very real problems that people were worried about and say, well, you know, he didn't do all this other stuff that we care about today. Yes, he didn't. And that's our job to do that. But but this kind of, you know, everybody who was before was horrible is it's it's just kind of a, a little bit of a naive take in my view. There's always there's always uh, credit to be gained by kind of destroying the past standards of something. And so, yeah, right. though, people who take easy, I think there are legitimate points uh, of, of, of uh, contest with kind of uh, some of Reagan's choices. But obviously, sure, of course, he, he could have he no no president's going to see into the future. If you you know, what, what are you going to do? You go back and you say, oh, well, Nixon was great. Well, Nixon made plenty yeah. of mistakes, too, as well. Yeah. You know, they, he was wrong on 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 a whole host of issues as well. You you go back, you're always going to find some problem, some problem with each president right. because, you know, they had to make decisions and you didn't. And right. so. well, and Reagan's political amnesty of illegal aliens, it was horrible. But I can tell you it wasn't a central thing at the time. For the most part and there wasn't like everybody it wasn't like the whole right was saying this was horrible and reagan pushed it forward anyway people somewhat naively as it turned out thought oh well you know this will solve the issue and they they probably took the left at, at much better faith than they should have so mm-hmm. it's uh you know I, again i just i think it's it's a mistake to, to to kind of be judgmental in that way although i i am definitely not a fan of zombie reaganism in any way. And I do share your concerns that we're going to have uh, zombie Trumpism at some point in the future. Yeah. My whole point was that is that was that the, once you've disembodied the movement from the leader that for forged the coalition, it just becomes a political placeholder for whoever's ideology. You know, they did, well, this is what Ronald Reagan would do. Would it, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know, and then I think we're going to get that with Trump too of, of very soon here, depending on how all this shakes out, of course. Uh, creeper weirdo here for two dollars. I don't think they have the nards to go after Trump. Uh, you know, again, I, it'll be very interesting. We'll, we, uh, w- I wouldn't bet against the stupidity of the Democratic Party or the audacity of the Democratic Party at this point. Uh, th- those seem like losing bets. Not saying they're going to make the move, but uh, I, they've done many things I I would never have expected them to to be foolish Absolutely. enough to do. So, um. One more thing, Adam E for two dollars. I assume reparations for non-Russian groups is a no. Yes, I, I think that's pretty safe to bet that uh, you will not be seeing any reparations for anyone who is not in a uh, uh, who is not in a favored group. There. Um, yeah. Although I think again, when you talk about strategies, this is something I've thought of. I'm I'm part of lots of groups from which I could uh, legitimately claim reparations. You know, for, for various. Uh, you know, wrongs that the American state has done to to ancestors of mine or groups of mine. Now, this would be totally insane. And I'm not actually suggesting this as a legitimate political strategy, but as a sort of way of of having fun and poking fun at the regime. You know, it's sort of like these affirmative action bake sales, which I actually think, uh, you know, the left always loses their marbles when we do it. And I think it's actually a pretty effective political micro strategy. I think, yeah, I'd love reparations. I'm, you know, I do. When are, when is, uh, when is Al Sharpton going to start paying me my reparations? Uh, you know, if done in the right way, that could actually be a fun tactic, even if it's not, you know, politically where the country is going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Life of Brian here for $4.99. Pedro Gonzalez really jumped the shark on this one. Uh, so, like, yeah, Pedro was definitely out there, uh, you know, kind of pushing against Trump on this one. 
I'll say this. I, I, I mean, I like Pedro. He's been on the uh, show multiple times, obviously. Uh, I think he has a fair point that he is worried that a lot of people think that Trump is as conservative as things can get. And that's that anchoring mechanism we talked about, right? Trump is a blue dog Democrat. And so if you think that Donald Trump is the most radical right wing thing imaginable, then that means blue dog Democrat is as radical as right wing politics can get in America. And I think he has an understandable concern that like, that's not how people should view our political situation. That said, I, I do think there is a little, it's a little hyperbole. I think it was a little overblown for a lot of people as far, you know, many, as Jeremy said, a lot of hot takes in a moment right. that maybe we didn't need that many hot takes. Yeah. Um, and Pedro so. is, I mean, yeah, Pedro's a friend of mine. He's a tough guy. He's a fighter. Um, I think some of the Trump folks pushed him in just the way that you said, and his reaction was to kind of double down on maybe the exact opposite. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, maybe not the strategy that, that I would have uh, personally pursued, but that's kind of why he's, you know, who he is. And just like everybody else, I think you need to, to take the good things and the bad things and just sort of sift them out for yourself. What, makes sense for you. And, and Pedro has done a lot of the, the best and toughest writing on this. I mean, certainly, I mean, he had a really, really edgy stuff on, on MLK and some of his mm. shortcomings. He went further than, than I would do by a lot in terms of, of really critiquing him. But, but in terms of, of really blasting apart the Democrats' completely fake racial narrative, uh, he's been very good on that. And, you know, I'd rather focus on that rather than like sniping about whether he's pro-Trump or anti-Trump, which is not going to ultimately decide whether Donald J. Trump is in the White House in 2025. Yeah, that position on MLK is certainly a far more uh, is a, a far braver stance than than anyone's taking on either Trump or or DeSantis at this moment. Right. Uh, you, you can you can see similar uh, points brought up by both myself and Ryan uh, Turnipseed. If you want to go back and uh, visit our conservative uh, is MLK a conservative uh, icon episode, you can find that in the backlog if you want to get uh all the uh he, he's got the receipts ryan's very good at that so sure. everyone can check that out uh life of brian here for 49.9 brazil will be a paradise compared to what's coming here there's still respect uh competence no white brazilian is crying over the favelas uh i'm i can't say that i'm super up on the kind of all the political goings on in brazil i have a general understanding of the situation but i i couldn't I say that I'm familiar enough that I would then uh, I would then be able to make judgments on whether or not you know Brazil is a positive example as to what would be coming in the United States. I do think that in the United States, it's largely going to break down by states. The federalism of the United States is going to make a big deal as uh, kind of the central government's ability to kind of push this stuff on each individual state kind of falls apart. And so yeah. I think uh, that's going to make a big difference in the United States. I don't know if, how that plays out compared to Brazil, but. Well, I, I do know a little bit about Brazil. My wife's parents actually grew up there, although they, they were Americans mm -hmm. growing up in Brazil, and they were sort of there in the heyday of the 1950s and 60s. I wrote about this uh, for a piece in I Am 1776 called The Brazilianification of America, I believe, uh, for those of you who want to check it out. Um, and I do think that you're right, and sort of implicitly what I think the, the commenter is getting at, which is important, is um, there's this weird self-hatred that is probably not present among white Brazilians that is present in a significant number of white liberals in America. And again, uh, our friend at the Manhattan Institute, Zach Goldberg, has done a great job of really quantitatively demonstrating just how crazy, I mean, how, how the attitudes of white liberals in America are just, they are totally stand apart from every other group in terms of their own self-hatred, their outgroup preferences, their level of mental illnesses. And, you know, <laughs> I have a number of friends, unfortunately, who've 
fall under this group. So again, I, I don't say this with any joy, but the data, you know, the, the, the data is not lying here. And it's really weird to me that it, it has this level of um, kind of racial and privileged pathos uh, that we have. And, and ultimately those folks are gonna have to be politically marginalized for us to make any progress at all as a country. Yep, I think that's absolutely the case. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming by. Jeremy is a great guest, always a great time talking to him. Make sure that you read his work. You can read his original piece over at The American Mind. And of course, if this is your first time here, please make sure that you are subscribing. Uh, if you would like to go ahead and get these episodes in podcast form, of course, you should subscribe to the Orrin McIntyre podcast on all your favorite uh, podcast platforms. You can go ahead and make sure that you leave a review and a rating while you're there. That really helps out with all the algorithm algorithms and everything. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who was uh, commenting. We got some really good questions, some really pr thought provoking ones. Really appreciate it. You guys always kind of uh, bring out some of the best parts of the show. So really appreciate you guys stopping by and asking those. Thanks for coming, everybody. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.